would you please join me in standing for the reading of God's Word and turning your Bibles to Luke chapter 23. If you don't happen to have a Bible with you this morning, I invite you to grab one of the chairback Bibles that should be nearby, even in front of you, and you'll find this morning's text on page 883. If you ever wanted to summarize the message of Scripture in three simple words from Genesis to Revelation, you might simply say, the message of the Bible is, Behold your King. Uh, From beginning to end, it means to show us the character, the wonder, the majesty, and the glory of our King. And it's a point we need to see even this morning because the parallel passage to our text in John's Gospel has Pilate bringing Jesus out before the crowds and before the religious leaders, and he says what? Behold, your King. But of course, he means it ironically. He means it even sarcastically. But we want to see what it looks like in full faith this morning from the first 25 verses of Luke 23. So kids, as I read the text, I want you to pay attention to what Pilate keeps saying throughout the text regarding Jesus Christ. It's there that you find the point that Luke wants us to see this morning. So let me go ahead and read the passage for us and then I'll pray that God would bless our study and we will begin. Let's hear now. As God speaks to us through his Son. Then the whole company of them arose and brought Jesus before Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered, You have said so. And then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. But they were urgent, saying, He stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, from Galilee even to this place. And when Pilate heard this, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. And when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at the time. And when Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad. For he had long desired to see him, because he had heard about him, and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. So he questioned Jesus at some length, but Jesus made no answer. And the chief priests and the scribes stood by, vehemently accusing him. And Herod, with his soldiers, treated him with contempt and mocked him. Then arraying him in splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate. And Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day. For before this, they had been at enmity with each other. And Pilate then called together the chief priests and the rulers and the people and said to them, You brought me this man as one who is misleading the people. And after examining him before you, behold, I find I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him, and neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. I will therefore punish and release him. But they all cried out together, Away with this man, and release to us Barabbas, a man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection started in the city and for murder. Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus, but they kept shouting, Crucify! Crucify him! A third time, Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? I have found in him no guilt deserving of death. I will therefore punish and release him. But they were urgent, demanding a 
loud cries that he should be crucified, and their voices prevailed. So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted, and he released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, for whom they asked, and he delivered Jesus over to their will. And Redeemer Church, what do we know about God's word? The grass withers, flowers fall, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let us pray together. Father, we do bow before you now, coming to the good news of your Son, Jesus Christ. We come now to this Gospel of Luke. Ever so much closer to the climax of Calvary and our Lord's death in our place. As we come to a text which for many in the room may be quite familiar. They've heard it their entire lives that you would give us fresh understanding to observe its truth. That you would open our eyes to behold the wondrous things from this word that we might know the fullness of Christ's work on our behalf. And so love him evermore, maybe even come to love him for the first time today. So help us to hear with faith and repentance for me to teach, to preach, as your word says I must, with courage and with clarity. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. It's one of the most famous speeches in American history, and it came the day after the stunning and surprising attack on Pearl Harbor. Many of you may recall it from history classes in days gone by when the next day President Franklin Roosevelt stood before a joint session of Congress and he urged the representatives and the senators there present to declare war in light of the stunning Pearl Harbor attacks. And maybe you can recall the first sentence of that most famous speech. Yesterday, December 7th, 1941, a day which will live in infamy. The United States of America was suddenly and deliberately attacked by the naval and armed forces of the Empire of Japan. A day which will live in infamy. Now we come to that day of days in all of human history in our text today once again. For many months we've been working through Luke's gospel for the next few weeks, including this. And last week we are focusing our attention on Good Friday, that most infamous of days. And what we see this morning is a cast of characters who are altogether infamous in history. But surely it's true that apart from the gospels in the Bible, we wouldn't know who they are. Caiaphas, Pontius Pilate, Herod, even this mysterious murderer named Barabbas. Now what we'll see, of course, is that Jesus is treated as an infamous rebel himself who deserves to die. When Luke's entire point throughout this passage is he's precisely the opposite. Yet he's still going to be condemned. So if you weren't with us last week, we left off in the wee morning hours of Good Friday. Jesus has just stood before a kangaroo court in Jerusalem, what we call the Supreme Court of the nation of Israel, the Sanhedrin, 71 different men, elders, Sadducees, Pharisees that stood in judgment over Jesus looking for some sort of an accusation that they could bring that would prove his guilt. And you, you may recall, from all of the gospel narratives, we discover that they can't get two witnesses to agree on what Jesus has done wrong. So they keep asking Jesus to implicate himself. But Jesus continues to be silent. And then in our text we saw last week, right where we left off, they had two simple questions that they directed toward Jesus. Are you the Messiah? And are you the Son of God? 
And if you look back at verse 70 of chapter 22, you'll see that he answers to the question, are you the son of God? You say that I am. And it's there, we know from the other gospel accounts, that the high priest Caiaphas, he tore his robes. He declared that Jesus had pronounced blasphemy. And then all these men rise up in judgment upon Jesus, saying, what further testimony do we need? We've heard it from his very own lips. But they have two problems, actually two very big problems when it comes to dealing with Jesus. The first of which we've said routinely over the last few months is only the Roman Empire had the authority of the sword. They condemned Jesus to death, but only Rome has the authority to actually execute Jesus. And to get that to happen, they have this second problem. They bring him before the Roman authorities and say, hey, we've got this leader among our people and he has committed blasphemy. They would probably say, what's the problem to us? It's a spiritual accusation that means nothing to them. So what we'll see in our text is they bring him before these Roman rulers and make a political accusation. Jesus is moving from the trial before the Sanhedrin to the trial before these secular judges. And what we're meant to see from the words of Pilate himself, kids, did you notice how over and over and over in our text, what does he say? I find no guilt in him. He is innocent. And that's the point of this passage. Jesus is the innocent one who will die for guilty sinners. He is the spotless Savior who dies for sinners like you and me. And so as we see him go to the cross this morning, we'll see it come to us, this announcement of his innocence in three different movements, first of which we want to see the leader's accusation. Look at verse 1 of chapter 23. We're told that the Sanhedrin, the whole company of them, arose and brought Jesus before Pilate. If you've been with us throughout Luke's gospel for the last many months here at Redeemer, you've been introduced to Pilate before. He showed up all the way back in Luke chapter 3. He shows up in also Luke chapter 13. But it's of course here in this trial that he conducts with this man named Jesus that he comes into human history in such an epic-making sense. I remember someone saying one time, if you wanted to understand Pilate, according to the ancient histories, just think of a thug in a, to in a toga. He's a toga-wearing thug. He was petty. He was cruel. He was vindictive. He was inflexible. He was basically the Roman prefect there over Judea, which means the only reason you were in the backwater of Judea in the Roman Empire is if you were yourself a second-rate leader and politician in Rome. Yet... If you look at any of the ancient creeds of Christianity outside of Jesus and his mother married, Pilate is the only person consistently mentioned, such as the Apostles' Creed, as it confesses Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate. He's a man that comes into pronounced point of view throughout this text. And notice the accusations that come from the leaders in verse 2. They began to accuse Jesus, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. So students, if you've been paying attention throughout Luke, when you hear those three accusations, this kind of threefold political condemnation of Jesus Christ, just kind of tilt your head and say, huh, I don't think that's totally true. I mean, did he ever say that Israel should in their disobedience, subvert Rome's authority? Surely he didn't say that they shouldn't pay taxes to Caesar. I mean, I remember a time when he said, render to Caesar. 
that which is Caesar's. Yeah, he did say he is Christ, he is a king, but it sure seems like he has a different understanding of what it means to be a king than these leaders do. And you need to notice here, you see something of the blinding nature of sin, the blinding nature of enmity towards Jesus Christ, wanting to do away with him with such fervor and fervency that you begin to make up charges that aren't even true. And it's on the last charge of him being a king that Pilate's ears suddenly are pricked. Because notice what he says in verse 3. He asks Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? Now, I think in the original language, we're, we're meant to read it as a mockery. You're the king of the Jews? That's what's before him. A king with lots of followers, this rich retinue of all of his worldly possessions demonstrating he is in fact royalty. What's standing before him? A man whose face is probably puffy, eyes swollen from all of his beatings, spit stuck to his beard, bloodied and bruised beyond recognition, and you're the king of the Jews? So what does Jesus say? You'll notice at the end of verse 3, Jesus answered, you have said so. That's much like this kind of mysterious yet affirmative answer he made before the Sanhedrin just hours before. You said it, I didn't. Which is something of an ancient equivalent of saying, well, yes, but what you mean by that title is something entirely different than what I mean by that title. And if you want to know what Jesus means by that title, you could go home later today and turn to John chapter 18, parallel passage where we get some dialogue between Pilate and Jesus over this issue of kingship. And do you remember what Jesus says? My kingdom is not of this world. I have a kingdom you can't fathom, Pilate. I'm a king that you cannot possibly imagine. So we dare not even begin to try to talk about it with you. And then what then ensues is the first of many contrasts that we do get in this passage between the Sanhedrin's vehemence towards Jesus and Pilate's verdict about Jesus. For look at verse 4 and 5. Pilate said to the chief priests and the scribes, I find no guilt in this man, but they were urgent, saying, He stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, from Galilee even to this place. Now, as a Roman prefect, Pilate had two essential duties. First, collect the money. So he's like the head honcho tax collector in this area. Number two, keep the peace. In other words, keep the riots settled. Now, Pilate normally would never have been in Jerusalem, but it was normal during Passover week for the Roman governors and authorities and soldiers to even descend on Jerusalem because this religious fervor in Israel was at such a height. It was kind of like a hotbed fertilizing potential insurrection and rebellion. So all these extra Roman powers and authorities came into the city. And Pilate has a potential riot on his hands he's sensing, but he thinks he's just got a way out. Do you notice verse 6 and 7? He says, ah, he's been teaching in Galilee. Is Jesus a Galilean? And they say, well, yes, he is. Well, you kind of think he just is ready to wash his hands and his conscience there. Okay, fine, it's settled, it's all dusted. Get him off to Herod, because that's Herod's jurisdiction. I bother myself with Judea. So off Jesus goes from Pilate, to Herod, and we move from the leader's accusation to the ruler's fascination. You know, there's this moment in many scenes of literature 
But for whatever reason, maybe because I was recently watching an old James Bond movie. I see it in James Bond stories all the time where you have like this hero meets the villain for the first time. This secret agent is finally captured and the bad guy shows up and kind of comes out of the shadows lurking forward and he says, we meet at last, Mr. Bond. And it's basically what Herod says to Jesus. Notice verse 8. When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad For he had long desired to see him because he had heard about him and was hoping to see some signs done by him. Uh, Students, what you want to understand here is that Herod in every way is fascinated with Jesus. Uh, But what you see with Herod is fascination is not the same thing as faith. You can be fascinated at someone and never trust in them. You can be utterly enraptured with a person and never believe in them. You see, he's kind of treating Jesus like a genie in the bottle in this moment. Hey, I'm fascinated with all these displays of miraculous power I've heard you perform throughout the land. So why don't you just go ahead and do one of those for us? Hey, here's my servant over here. He may have a demon. Cast it out. Well, this guy has a mother and she can't get off her bed. Why don't you raise her? But Jesus is not in any way going to accede and assent to such desires of sinful people, is he? And how true it is today that there are many people that hear of Jesus' power, they hear of these historical miracles that he has performed throughout the centuries, and they say, surely I'll then believe in him. Just give me a sign of who you really are. But he's not treating Jesus as just this kind of spiritual genie in a bottle. He's also like a court jester before Herod, because notice what we're told in verse 9 and 10. He's keeping the questioning Jesus at some length. Jesus makes no answer, and so Herod and his people, notice verse 11, treated him with contempt and mocked him, then arraying him with splendid clothing, sent him back to Pilate. They've had their fun with Jesus, and now it's time to move on back to normal life, and again, how true that is of so many people in the world today. There's a temporary fascination with Jesus, that brings no sort of long-lasting relationship with Jesus. But you'll notice this kind of crazy story that only Luke records in all the Gospels, verse 12. We find that even there in Jesus' work, you get Pilate and Herod, who had long hated each other, becoming friends that day because of their enmity towards Jesus. Jesus' mission all throughout Luke, his message all throughout Luke has been one of reconciliation. He's bringing together the Jews and the Gentiles, the forgotten and the forsaken, the tax collectors and the Samaritans, those that society thinks so little of, he is reconciling together. And it's as though as he gets so close to the cross, he can't help but reconciliation just begins to break out all over the place, including his enemies. And if he can reconcile enemies and their disagreement about who he really is, how much more wonderful is his reconciliation with his people who trust in who he actually is his true followers and disciples. His fascination now gives way to what the leaders have been after all along, which is the Savior's condemnation. You'll see Pilate calls together the chief priests and all the Sanhedrin once again in verse 13, and he says again, I have found no guilt in this man. We've examined him. He's innocent. But strikingly, you'll notice also in verse 15, he says, neither did Herod for he sent him back to us. Now, kids, here's why it's important what Pilate has just said. In the ancient Jewish system of justice, to establish a charge against a person, you needed two witnesses. 
And you remember from the sham trial of the Sanhedrin the night before, they can't get two witnesses to agree on anything about Jesus. And in a matter of moments, what do we have? Two witnesses. Pagan rulers saying what? He's innocent. What the religious leaders were unwilling in their blinded sin to admit. These men who don't trust in him know right away there's nothing that he has done wrong. And so, notice what Pilate decides to do. Verse 16, I will therefore punish and release him. Uh, punish meaning something like I'm going to send him through a whipping, which would have been less than the scourging that he's getting ready to go through, but certainly quite painful nonetheless. And yet these religious leaders, they don't want Jesus disciplined, do they? They want him dead. So it's time to shout all the more. I think the first audiobook I ever listened to years ago to occupy my afternoon runs or my minds on the afternoon runs was this journalistic history of World War II titled The Rise and Fall of the Third Reich. It's written by a guy named William Shirer. It sold uh, millions of copies throughout the years. And Shirer was a CBS journalist living in Germany during the rise of Nazi Germany. And still to this day, the most striking scene that I remember in that book, as I was listening to it there on the sidewalks running around McKinney, was this scene in which Hitler has finally sent his forces into the Rhineland. So he's remilitarized this area that was supposed to be demilitarized. It's a, it's a very honest and also brave breaking away with the Treaty of Versailles that ended World War I. And later on that day, all the Leaders in Germany, the governmental figures, are gathering together to celebrate this kind of reassertion of power in Europe and the world. And Shirer was there. And he remembers taking in this incredible scene of frenzy there in Germany. And later on that evening, he went to his diary and wrote this of the people there. They spring, yelling and crying to their feet. Their faces are contorted with hysteria. Their mouths wide open, shouting shouting, their eyes burning with fanaticism. It's a, it's a frenzy that mirrors what we see there before Pilate and what John's gospel calls the stone pavement. Notice verse 18 through 21. But they all cried out together, away with this man and release to us Barabbas. Now, he was a man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection started in the city and for murder. Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus. But what did they say? Crucify. Crucify him. Now, we'll get back to Barabbas in a minute. But you need to see the Sanhedrin, these defenders of piety, these teachers of orthodoxy, in their hatred towards Jesus, they've become little more than demonic yell leaders, rousing up the rabble that is before them to shout what? Crucify. Crucify him. And kids, you may have heard something about crucifixion before. Maybe you know it's the worst way to die in the ancient world. The ancient philosopher Cicero called it the most torturous of deaths. The ancient historian Josephus called it the most gruesome and pitiable way of dying. What has their hatred of Jesus come to? They're calling for crucifixion 
which would mean this, according to one scholar. Crucifixion was the climax of the torturer's art. Nothing could be more horrible than the sight of this living body, breathing, seeing, hearing, still able to feel and yet reduced to the state of a corpse by forced immobility and absolute helplessness. We cannot say the crucified person even writhed in agony for it was impossible for him to move. Stripped of his clothing, unable even to brush away the flies that fell upon his wounded flesh, already lacerated by preliminary scourging, exposed to insults and curses of the people, the penalty of crucifixion combined all the most ardent tormentor could desire. And this is what the defenders of Israel desired of the man named Jesus. Crucify, crucify him. So Pilate goes, you'll notice in verse 22 another time, what has he done? I found no guilt in this man. I'll just punish him and then release him. Uh, Pilate knows he's got this growing riot on his hands. Remember, that's the second part of his duty. Make sure to keep the peace in Rome. And at this moment when he should have asserted his, his authority in a responsible way, because Matthew's gospel tells us he knows that the religious leaders have brought Jesus to him because they're just envious of him. At a moment when he should have asserted his leadership, he cowers to their desires. Because notice how Luke places the accent here on the religious leaders in Jerusalem, there in Israel. Look at 24 and 25. So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder whom they asked, but he delivered Jesus over to their will. And if you have eyes to see, over and against what we find out in other Gospels, Luke is particularly emphasizing here in these 25 verses the absolute fundamental responsibility of Israel in killing their Messiah. It's almost as though Luke has constructed it in such a way that he wants to let Pilate off the hook. Yet he caves to the demands of these religious leaders. And if you know the story of Luke's gospel, Jesus has always been marching, hasn't he? Evermore, closer and closer and closer to Jerusalem. Weeping and wailing as a lamenting prophet over their unrepentant sin. But because of their rejection of him, what does he promise? Judgment is on the way. And if you wanted to know the full rejection of the nation of Israel against Jesus Christ, the one and only Messiah, you see it here. And that Pilate, delivered him over to their will. He's the innocent one who's going to die as though he was, in fact, guilty. Sometime last week, I had sent the boys upstairs to, I think it was, clean their room. And, you know, it was one of the times in the day and along the way that you say, hey, if you clean it up quickly because it shouldn't take long, hey, there'll be some sort of blessing at the end of this whole chore. But if you don't, no reward whatsoever. And sure enough, the simple chore took very, very long. Long enough that it was now bedtime. And I said, all right, in the shower, pajamas on, then we're going to bed. And one of my sons said, with children throughout the ages, these three-word phrases that parents have heard throughout the ages, it's not fair. <laughs> and so we sat down and had, as best you can, with a father and young children, a discourse on matters of justice. <laughs> and if ever there was a time 
If ever there was a time when we read the Bible and we want to cry, it's not fair, it's here. It's not fair. Even the sinful rulers say he's innocent. Even these pagan kings say he's not guilty. And yet what happens to him? Treated as though he is guilty. What's interesting to me about Luke chapter 23 is he doesn't mention what the other gospel writers do as to what happened to Jesus after Pilate hands him over. Maybe you know that story. Jesus is made to go into this kind of inner torture chamber where he was scourged, the biblical authors say, hands tied to these chains above and dropping from the ceiling, this multi-lash whip embedded with bones and metal made to sear his back in such a way that he's beaten to a bloody pulp. And then he's marched into the governor's headquarters and surrounded by what we're told is an entire battalion of Roman soldiers, some 600 of them standing before him. And what do they begin to do? They take thorns and shove it into his head. They put a purple cloak around his back. It's the color of kingly royalty. They take staff and begin to beat him. And you wonder how many of the 600 took the staff and actually hit him. All the while saying what? In mockery towards the true king of kings, hail, king of the Jews. It offends our sense of, of justice. But as we begin to close, what I want to show you from this passage is not only the glory and majesty of Jesus Christ that you see there in Luke chapter 23, but also your place in this story. Because you may even ask as you walk through a text like this, well, what does this have to do with me? Or students would say, hey, where am I in this whole narrative of the innocent king who dies for the guilty? Well, I want to show you where you are in two places and then we're done. First, you see yourself in the fact that Jesus was shamed for sinners. The king of kings is mocked. The lord of lords is struck. The prince of peace is spit upon. He who came to bring peace on earth receives nothing more than a, a fiery fist from his enemies. And what's fascinating to me is if you turn to Hebrews chapter 12 later on this afternoon, you'll eventually, right from the get-go of that chapter, be confronted with a statement about Jesus Christ in shame. It says that, For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising its shame. And that word despise in the original language actually is to basically mean to think little of. Now compare that with what he endured. Really? Think little of being beaten, bloodied, bruised beyond recognition? Little? Spit, swollen eyes, lacerated back, thorns in his brow? Little? It's there you begin to see his love for sinners like you and me. That such shame is but little to the king who came to love sinners unto the very end. But even more pointedly, what do you see when you see yourself in this scene? When he's hit, my sin hit him. Thorns into his head, my disobedience towards God's law. My failings mean he is lashed. My shortcomings mean he is struck. You see yourself in all of the wounds and all of the beatings because he took it Why? For sinners like you and me. 
And yet the love and grace and majesty of Jesus Christ as he despised the shame. He thought it little to take it in your place. Jesus was shamed for sinners. Number two, Jesus is the substitute for sinners. I told you we'd get back to this man named Barabbas. His name means, and students, if you just think about it <clears throat> slowly and carefully, Bar Abbas, son of the Father. Matthew's gospel and the ancient manuscripts say his name is actually Yeshua Bar Abbas, Jesus Barabbas. So what we actually have at the end of our text is the story of two sons of the Father, two Jesuses, if you will. Which one, Pilate says, will you choose? The one who tries to overthrow the king? Or the one who is himself the king? The one who is guilty? Or he who is not guilty? Because if you're in here this morning and you're not a Christian, you need to see yourself in this man named Barabbas. He had broken the law and so was justly condemned. You too have broken God's law and are justly condemned. He deserved death. You too deserve death. But the good news of Christianity, what we call the gospel, is most centrally found in this idea of substitution. Him in your place. And few texts in the Bible illustrate it so profoundly as Jesus taking what was Barabbas's. As the only person that we could literally say in human history, Jesus took his cross. So you wonder, don't you, what Barabbas was thinking that day. Maybe he was out of sight of all the commotion going on there at the stone pavement. Maybe he could hear what was going on, though, when he heard these shouts from our text of, Crucify! Crucify him! And he thinks, my time has finally come. He hears footsteps around the corner, marching towards him. Surely they're going to open this gate and take him out, scourge him, and then crucify him. But what does he see march past him? Someone else. And the gate does open. But Barabbas goes free. So you wonder, did he march up the hill of Calvary hours later? Did he look upon the man who took his place? Did he think, thank you for taking my place? Or did he think little of it and just move on, rejoicing that he has now been set free. Maybe you too this morning, through the Word and Spirit, come to Calvary, and you're made to look on the King who is shamed for sinners and is the substitute of sinners. And what do you see? Do you see someone to look at? Hmm, that's interesting. But let's move on. Or do you see a Savior for a sinner like you, taking the death you deserve. He's the innocent one who dies for the guilty. Let's pray together. Our Father, we do thank you for Jesus Christ who is our substitute. That out of joy he went to the cross to demonstrate your love that when Pilate says, behold your king, we do indeed see the king of kings, the Lord of lords, the Prince of peace, he who is the very embodiment of your love towards us. So we pray that you would help us to know him, that you would indeed help us to obey him, 
to trust in Him that we might know the life that He gives to us and He can only give to us because He gave up His life in our place. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let us stand as we want to respond to the work of Jesus Christ together in singing our hymn of response, which is printed in your bulletins, The Power of the Cross.